Toppling the existing social, civic, and economic order is, in and of itself, a monumental challenge. But perhaps the greatest challenge awaiting prospective revolutionaries is not the task of defeating the old status quo, but replacing it with a new one. After all, healthy, stable, and well-loved regimes typically are not the ones where revolutions take place, especially not successful ones. If a revolution succeeds in overthrowing the ancien regime, the existential crises that plagued that regime in the first place will not suddenly disappear now that the old flag is lowered and a new butt is on the throne. If the revolutionaries fail to deliver on their substantial promises, that same dissatisfied mob of people who helped them rise to power in the first place will certainly redirect their resentment from the old regime to the new one. The causes of Uthman Danfodio's successful revolution that overthrew not only the Gobir monarchy, but many kings of Qasr and its surroundings, are myriad and still highly debated to this day. Unscrupulous accounts will summarize events as that Sheikh Uphodio was upset that Hausa leaders were not committed enough to Islam, so he overthrew them. This explanation is not only overly simplistic, but it also misses the purpose of the question more broadly. Sure, the lack of commitment to Islamic religious praxis was one of the key features that led Fodio to grow increasingly critical of the establishment of Qasr Hausa. But, according to Fodio himself, this was not the sole or even necessarily the main reason for his leading the revolt. And, even if it really had been the sole factor in Fodio himself becoming alienated from the political status quo, Fodio was just one man. This explanation of events fails to account for what motivated the thousands of men and women with very distinct religious beliefs, ethnic backgrounds, occupations, and material interests to join the Jama'ah despite the obvious risks of persecution it brought. What was so upsetting to these people about the old order that they decided to risk their lives in order to get rid of it? And, now that the war was complete and the enemies of the Sheikh were vanquished, would the world that these people dreamed of ever come to fruition. Hello everyone, and welcome to the fourth and final part of our examination of the Sokoto Jihad. Today, we will examine the long-term political, social, economic, and religious impacts of the Jihad, discover the new social order that it ushered in, and identify the legacy that it has left behind in Nigeria to this very day. Part 4, A West African Khalifat. While the previous episodes in this mini-series have touched on some of the contentions that Fodio and the Jama'a had with the old order of Qasr Hausa, there are a few major factors that we glossed over. One of the most salient sources of frustration that led many people to join the Jama'a was the issue of widespread corruption. Prior to the Sokoto Jihad, economic and political corruption was an outstandingly common feature of life in Qasr Hausa much to the chagrin of the inhabitants who had to live with its consequences. Corruption permeated and affected the lifestyles of every single person in the social hierarchy, from the lowest peasant farmer to the sarki himself. Looking first to the most common forms of everyday corruption, fraud was a rampant and notorious problem. Merchants in Hausa cities commonly ripped people off using petty schemes like selling expired or poorly made products. Charging exorbitant interest on loans while misleading debtors about their financial implications, and conspiring with other merchants to artificially gouge the price of goods. In isolation, the economic effect of these schemes were relatively minor, but the widespread nature of fraud meant that these small incidents added up. 
Not only was loads of hard-earned money being consolidated into the hands of rapacious merchants, but it also led to a severely low rate in consumer confidence. After all, if you're just an ordinary average Joe, why should you go to the market if there's a high chance you're going to get scammed? Fraud was endemic in higher-level institutions as well. Bribery was the essential avenue through which things got done in governments throughout Qasr Hausa. You might remember that during his meeting with Uthman Danfodio, Sarki Bawa had initially tried to bribe the Sheikho, only to find out that Fodio was unwilling to accept the payment. Well, keep in mind that not only did every other religious leader present accept the payment, but that everyone was utterly floored by Fodio's refusal. That's just how common and normalized the practice of bribery was. So, if a Sarki wanted to get a local noble to do something for him, he'd have to hand out a sizable bribe. And, in the opposite direction, if a local noble wanted the Sarki to do something for him, bribery was, of course, the first step. Even in lower levels of government, if you were a local merchant or craftsman who wanted to get a noble's attention, you'd typically have to offer up a bribe just to get an audience with them. And, if you simply didn't have the type of money where you could sling it around like this, your voice just wasn't heard. The sheer reliance on bribery to perform governmental functions in pre-Jihad Qasr Hausa meant that basically anything the government did ended up being very slow and very expensive. And, of course, how did the Sarki acquire all the money to pay out these bribes? The answer was usually crushing taxes on the working classes. So not only were farmers and other working people paying enormous taxes, not only were they getting ripped off whenever they went to the market, but nobody was interested in listening to their complaints because, well, they didn't have the money to offer up bribes. With the completion of his conquest of Qasr Hausa, solving the endemic corruption in both government and the economy were top priorities of Uthman Danfodio. To handle governmental corruption, Fodio delegated authority to his two most trusted allies. These were his brother, Abdullahi, and his son, Muhammad Bello. The two were appointed with the title of Vizier and each granted authority to govern half of the nascent imamate. Abdullahi was made vizier of the west, governing the lands of Gudu, Kebbi, and Gobir, while Muhammad Bello was the vizier of the east, governing over Kanu, Katsina, Samfara, and Sazal. The two viziers were essentially the true governing authority in their lands, while Fodio concerned himself instead with bigger-picture questions of dictating the official political theory and supporting the legitimacy of his new state. The choice to set up this arrangement with Abdullahi was not too surprising to any political insiders within the Jama'ah, as everyone was aware that while the Sheikh was the spiritual guide of the revolution, his brother had always been the guy who handled all the ground-level political tasks. The appointment of Bello, on the other hand, was a bit of a shock. Mohammed Bello, who has featured relatively sparingly in this miniseries, grew up in a manner befitting the son of Uthman Danfodio. He received a top-notch education in rhetoric and theology from both his father and other teachers. Of course, he participated heavily in the initial revolution to overthrow Yunfa. As we saw, he was present at the Battle of Tabkinquato and, according to the accounts of his uncle, fought with admirable bravery. Despite still being quite young, only in his early 20s by this point, the Sheikhu and Abdullahi believed that Bello was sufficiently capable to assist in running half of the imamate. This move was certainly very risky, and it's not especially clear whether we should say it paid off. The young Eastern Vizier saw many ups and downs during his first decade of administration, and really throughout his entire political career, but we'll get to that later. 
The first step that Shehu and his viziers took in clamping down on the rampant corruption in government was to completely rewrite the way that his state legitimized itself. Governmental legitimacy refers to the process through which the state makes itself seem legitimate in the eyes of the populace and elites alike. That is, what is the state's explanation for its own existence, and how much do the people and elites really buy into it? Prior to Fodio's revolution, all of the states in Kasarhausa derived their legitimacy from variations of the same source, the Ballad of Bayajida. If you ask the Sarki of a Hausa city-state why you should respect and support his government, the answer was simple. He was one of the seven kings of the House of Akwai, the seven legitimate sons of Abu Yazid and Daurama. So, of course he should rule. It was his birthright, the natural order of things. This justification for legitimacy had worked successfully for the Sarkis of Kasarhausa until it hadn't. One of the big problems that come with using this appeal to the status quo to inform your own legitimacy is that, well, I should rule because that's just how it is isn't a very strong motivator to attract loyal, capable allies and supporters. It won't attract civil servants interested in public good or righteous governance. Rather, it would attract careerists, who are interested solely in their own advancement and enrichment. Fodio's government, on the other hand, produced an entirely different justification for its own existence. Unlike the Sarkis, Fodio was not legitimate due to his birthright, but due to the holiness of his mission. The goal of Fodio's leadership was not to enrich himself or others, nor to establish a new status quo for its own sake, but to govern in the way prescribed by Islam. To cement the Islamicness of his new society, Fodio began writing about the imamate in a new fashion, framing the new government of Kasarhausa as a khalifat. The words khalif and khalifat, similarly to jihad, are words that are often misunderstood by the non-Muslim public. Khalif, the Arabic word, straightforwardly means successor. In a political and religious context, the title of khalif typically referred to the successor of the Prophet Muhammad the leader of the Islamic community after the Prophet's passing. So, the shockingly common misconception that the Prophet Muhammad was the first Khalif of Islam, well, that's not true. After all, how could he be the successor of the Prophet if he was, you know, the Prophet? The question of what a Khalifat is has resulted in a lot of confusion about the nature of Uthman Danfolio's Khalifat. Many people seem to believe that the Khalifat must be a political union of all Muslims, or at least the entire Islamic world. So then, why is the leader of this random imamate in West Africa, albeit a rather large one, claiming to be the ruler of a new Khalifat? And there's the mistake. Contrary to popular depiction, Uthman Danfodio, in fact, never claimed to be the Khalif of all of Islam, nor did he claim to rule over the Khalifat. In one of his writings, Masail al-Muhima, Fodio defined a Khalifat as a government run by someone who attempts to act as the successor of the Prophet. Basically, if Khalif means successor, Khalifat means state run by a successor. In this interpretation, the Sheikh recognized the legitimacy of the other, more well-known claimant to the title of Khalif that existed at the time, the Ottoman Empire. He also recognized the legitimacy of the Ottoman Khalif, meaning that, despite the fact that he claimed to rule over a Khalifat, the Sheikhu rarely, if even ever, referred to himself as a Khalif. Typically, he preferred to call himself either the Imam or, most often, the Commander of the Believers.
with a clear framework for a state's legitimacy now asserted, Bello and Abdullahi began to work on assembling a functional government for this new caliphat. Recruiting from both the ranks of the Jama'ah and from local scholars who had supported their revolution, the viziers filled the ranks of the caliphat's bureaucracy. Replacing the Sarkis as the primary local authorities was a new class of administrator, the emir or prince. The emirs were tasked with handling the day-to-day administration of their city, such as collecting taxes, raising armies, and appointing street-level bureaucrats. Accompanying each emir, the vizier also appointed a qadi, or high judge. The judge oversaw and advised the actions of each emir. If the qadi thought that the emir was not properly enforcing sharia, he could challenge the emir's decision by appealing it to the vizier. The vizier, after hearing both the qadi and emir testify about their side of the dispute, would then rule on the outcome. Their ruling could range from simply endorsing the view of one side and forcing the defeated party to embrace the other's decision, or in extreme cases, when an official was seen as behaving very outside the realm of acceptable behavior for a man of their position, they could be removed from their office. This new, highly regimented, highly bureaucratized system of government had an enormous impact on the reduction of state corruption in Qasr Hausa. Not only did Fodio's government insist on a justification for its existence beyond its own enrichment, but the bureaucratic system ensured that everybody was answerable to someone. The street-level bureaucrats were answerable to the emir, the emir was answerable to the qadi, the qadi was answerable to the vizier, and the vizier was answerable to the imam. Uthman Dan Fodio. Meanwhile, Fodio announced that his position of imam would be an elected position, who would be answerable to all members of the Jama'ah. With a clear hierarchy and chain of accountability established, bribery became far less common in halls of government. In a happy side effect, this also improved the efficiency and cost-effectiveness of basically every government decision. Now that state corruption was curtailed, corruption in the marketplace was the next item on the agenda. The Sheikhu and his viziers adopted a new motto, La Khaliba, or No Fraud, and instituted a series of state regulations designed to protect consumers from fraudulent merchants. For starters, they initiated a system of commercial licenses, meaning that anyone interested in selling goods in Khalifat markets had to register with their local emir first. The emir then judged if this person was fit to sell on the market investigating if they had a reputation of engaging in fraudulent behavior, if they were selling a product with genuine social and economic value, and if they had sufficient knowledge of the laws and regulations that guided commerce within the Sokoto Khalifat. If they did, they were granted a license and allowed to sell freely. However, if they were later caught engaging in any illegal behavior, like overcharging for goods, selling snake oil products, or conspiring with other merchants to artificially raise prices, they were not only immediately stripped of their license, but would also likely see their entire fortune seized by the state. The state also had the legal authority to prevent the formation of monopolies, as well as to institute price controls on necessary products, though, according to the writings of Fodio, these were drastic measures that should only be used in case of economic emergency. Through a combination of improved market confidence, tax cuts for the working classes, as well as the increased integration and efficiency that came with having the entire market under a single banner, Qasar Hausa experienced something of an economic miracle in the early 1810s. The city of Kanu in particular benefited from the early period of the Sokoto Khalifat. The city rapidly expanded as a center of textile and dye manufacturing, 
and even began to rapidly overtake the neighboring kingdom of Borno as the leading producer and copier of books throughout the Sahel. With a stable post-revolutionary civic and economic system running smoothly, Folio's next priority was the introduction of social reforms to advance the Islamic cultural revolution that had motivated his jihad in the first place. These reforms would prove far trickier to introduce. While the only major opposition to the Sheikh's economic reforms came from the old Hausa elites, you know, the ones he had just defeated and overthrown, social reforms were another story. Even after the success of the jihad, the majority of the population of Qasar Hausa, especially in the rural countryside, still believed in one extent or another elements of the old pagan religion. Even among genuinely committed Muslims in the countryside, it was not uncommon to see people engaging in practices that they viewed as normal, but Fodio labeled as harmful pagan innovations. Some common practices that Fodio opposed included the casting of spells and incantations, vision quests provided by local magicians, facial scarring and branding, self-flagellation, and, of course, female genital mutilation. Fodio's plan for his cultural revolution was something incredibly novel not only in the context of Sahelian West Africa, but in the whole world. His plan was the introduction of a fully public education system. Today, the concept of a public schooling system doesn't sound very impressive. As we speak, just about every country in the world today has one form or another of public education. But in the 1810s, true public schools were a global rarity. Public school systems, as in an entire system of state-run schools open to the public, were few and far between around the world. There had been schools in Kasarhausa prior to Fodio's revolution, of course, but there had been nothing like a unified public school system before. So, Fodio's plan to establish a public education system was ambitious to say the least. To put the plan into action, Abdullahi and Muhammad Bello began encouraging various emirs to mobilize local scholars and Islamic leaders for a massive educational outreach program. This campaign went beyond the traditional walls of the classroom. Scholars provided free lectures not only in schools, but also in public squares in towns and cities, and in rural villages. Notably, Fodio advised that lectures should be delivered in Hausa, or Fulfulde, rather than the Arabic that dominated higher-level academia, but was essentially a foreign tongue to the vast majority of ordinary people. And, of course, attendance at these lectures was to be entirely free of charge. The lectures taught people about religion, laws, civics, and philosophy, but focused the bulk of their efforts on literacy. Literacy, of course, is absolutely necessary for practicing Muslims so that they may read and comprehend holy texts. So, teaching as many people to read as possible represented an important waypoint in Fodio's desired cultural reformation. Perhaps the most shocking element of the Sheikho's literacy campaign was that it not only included, but encouraged the education of women. Even as far back as his days as a teacher, Fodio had been a strong advocate for women's education. Prior to the revolution, gender roles in Kasarhausa, like many things, differed along an urban-rural divide. Among the urban upper classes, women were typically treated as reproductive heirlooms to elite families. The ideal woman was secluded in their home during the day to maintain an aura of purity and fertility. Her physical beauty and reproductive capability were, in fact, her sole sources of value. As a result, women in these upper class families lived pampered but secluded lives. They were allowed no form of education or work, as that was not her place. 
In fact, they were rarely even allowed to leave the home during the day, as being outside would darken her skin and ruin her beauty. Nor could she leave at night, as she may engage in extramarital affairs and ruin her purity. Now, there were, of course, exceptions to this, but the general role of women in pre-Jihad Hausa society was to live as prisoners. When these women reached an age where they were perceived as losing their attractiveness, the most common result was immediate and unapologetic divorce. So, basically imagine that elite pre-Jihad society was like a whole bunch of Leonardo DiCaprios, marrying women when they were young, divorcing them when they grow quote-unquote old, and then marrying a new young woman, or sometimes groups of young women, in their place. This system of courtship created enormous strain on the socioeconomic systems of house of cities through the creation of an ever-multiplying underclass of divorcee women. These women had no work experience, no education, and, due to the marriage and divorce customs of house of society at the time, had no family to support them either. When it came to finding work, the luckier among these women could find jobs as assistants to merchants in the marketplace, in which they would use their feminine appeal to advertise the merchant's products. However, the most common fate of these women was to become prostitutes. With the frankly miserable state of their existence in mind, it really shouldn't surprise you to learn that these downtrodden divorcees were among the most eager and radical of Fodio's followers, and comprised a disproportionate amount of the early Jama. Compared to the highly restrictive atmosphere within the city, women in the agrarian and pastoral countryside enjoyed comparatively more freedom. After all, the high labor demands of the rural economy ensured that families could not afford to keep women around as disposable trophy wombs. That doesn't mean that their life was good by any means, though. Free women in the countryside were just as overworked, undercompensated, oppressed, and alienated as their free male counterparts, but with the added responsibility of the burdens of motherhood. The Shekho's view of women, on the other hand, was largely shaped by his own unusual upbringing. Compared to the rest of Kasarhausa, the only class of people that gave anything resembling relatively positive treatment to women was the urban fulbe. Their recent roots in the nomadic, pastoral lifestyle, where women were afforded relatively equal rights and responsibilities, combined with their urban lifestyle that afforded them greater leisure time, meant that many urban, upper-class fulbe retained a culture of relative freedom for women even as they became increasingly assimilated into other facets of urban Hausa culture. In the case of Fodio's family, both the Shekho's mother and grandmother were well-educated in their own right. Additionally, Fodio took inspiration from Islamic history. In the early history of Islam, the Prophet's wives Khadija and Aisha, as well as his daughter Fatima, all played crucial roles in the success of the Islamic faith. With these influences in mind, Fodio became committed to the then-radical notion that women had value as human beings beyond reproduction. He implemented this idea in his parenting and teaching. His daughters, Nana Asma and Mariamu, received a top-flight education similar to that of Muhammad Bello. Meanwhile, despite facing an enormous amount of opposition from the scholarly community, Fodio delivered lectures to co-ed crowds. One scholar, Mustafa Goni, pointed out the seeming irony that Fodio, who officially denounced the open social mixing between men and women, was perfectly happy with this type of gender mixing in his classes. He sent a letter to Fodio demanding that he bar women from attending his classes. Fodio's response was littered with sarcasm. Oh, you who have come to guide us aright. We have heard what you have said. Now listen to what we say. You gave advice to the best of your ability. 
We found the people of this country drowning in ignorance. Shall we prevent them from understanding religion? It has been said, judgment shall be carried out on a people according to the evil they create. Think about that. Essentially, Fodio argued that while the mixing of men and women is bad, the choice to leave women without education is worse. Fodio's solution for the oppression of women was the same as his solution to many problems, education. Back in his teaching days, this had meant inviting them to lectures and classes. Now it meant supporting their integration into the wider educational movement of the nascent Khalifat. Not only were scholars providing classes on government support now mandated to include women in their lessons, but the Sheikhu's daughters themselves also contributed. The pair traveled throughout the country, teaching lessons to women and men alike. Later in life, the sisters developed a prestigious reputation for their scholarship and art, even forming a sort of Jama'a-esque academic celebrity following in the 1830s and 40s. Their followers, who would later be known as the Yantaru, or Sisterhood, formed the largest organization of female scholarship in the Sahel, one that even persists to this day. Now, we can't illustrate quantitatively the exact success of Fodio's literacy program with something like a literacy rate, as no figures from the time exist. But historical scholars of the Sokoto Khalifa generally estimate that the state's literacy was surprisingly high. The legacy of Sokoto emphasis on literacy can still be felt in northern Nigeria to this day. According to Falungom, professor of anthropology at Boston University, between 80% and 90% of Hausa and Fulbe in modern northern Nigeria are literate in Hausa Ajami, the form of modified Arabic abjad writing used to transcribe the Hausa and Fufulde language. This rate actually substantially succeeds the general literacy rate in both northern Nigeria and Nigeria as a whole, due to the Nigerian government's decision only to recognize literacy in standardized Arabic and the Latin scripts in literacy statistics. With a public educational system set up, the Sheikhu and his viziers now faced a question of what values they should aim to instill in the general population. Now, of course, it's not like Fodio was short on ideas. After all, he had just spent the last several years prior to and during the jihad writing all about the ideals of how an Islamic society should be governed. But, well, the Sheikhu quickly found out that writing about how things ought to be is a lot easier than trying to actually put those ideas into practice. So, when advising his viziers on actual laws and edicts to enforce, the Sheikhu was much more flexible and even pragmatic than you might expect. In a meeting with Abdullahi, Uthman advised that the state should be lax when it came to enforcing certain overtly Islamic practices, and only legally enforce Islamic laws when they met the following conditions, that all relevant scholars had unanimously agreed on the interpretation of the law, or that the law in question was so important that refusing to enforce it could lead to imminent social collapse. While the Sheikhu certainly would have preferred to implement his agenda to the fullest extent, he plainly understood that total enforcement of Islamic principles was impractical, and that the state should at first focus on only enforcing the most overtly necessary laws. One example of the Sheikhu's later pragmatic approach is the case of music. This might be shocking given the dearth of fascinating and diverse musical traditions from around the Islamic world, but the legality of music, yes, all music, within Islam has always been a contentious matter among Islamic scholars. While the Qur'an never explicitly mentions music as a forbidden activity, some Islamic scholars have interpreted surahs that warn against idle talk, or speech empty of value, as being inclusive of music. 
Now, obviously, given the breadth of musical tradition in the Islamic world, not everyone has adhered to or agreed to such a hardline stance on this matter. Some scholars have argued that only music that overtly encourages sinful behavior should be prohibited, and that when used in the right hands, music could actually be a powerful tool for evangelization and worship. Uthman Danfodio fell somewhere in the middle of the two, though he generally leaned in the more permissive direction. He believed that music which disturbed the Islamic social order, music that encouraged lustful activities, drinking, the mixing of sexes, or entertainment for its own sake, should be prohibited. He also opposed the use of music in Sufi lodges and in Islamic evangelization, but didn't view it as a danger to the Islamic faith, and therefore he didn't see it as a priority to crack down on. He also accepted the playing of music for the marking of special occasions, like weddings or holidays, as well as music used for practical purposes, like battle or work music. Abdullahi disagreed, believing that since the majority of Islamic scholars in the Sahel straightforwardly oppose the use of music regardless of context, it should be prohibited regardless of context. Strangely, this is one of the few examples where Abdullahi, usually the more politically and materially oriented of the Fodio brothers, supported the more hardline ideological stance, while Uthman supported the more pragmatic view. Ultimately, on this matter and others, Abdullahi submitted to Uthman's wishes, and adopted a more lax vision when it came to enforcing less urgent Islamic principles. To Fodio, the most urgent Islamic principle in need of fulfillment was providing welfare to the hordes of poor and downtrodden throughout Qasr Hausa. Much like public education, today the concept of a basic welfare state is not a radical proposition, and is taken as a given by the vast majority of the politically active population. The dominant assumption today is that, well, of course a state should try to aid in the welfare of its population. Politicians and activists will debate what the extent of this role should be, what responsibilities the state should assume, and what methods it should use to procure the finances, but all except a small slice of fringe political thinkers today support some form of a welfare state's existence. But it is important to keep in mind that the promulgation of this idea, that states have an obligation to support the welfare of its people, is a rather new one. Throughout most of human history, the general paradigm of statehood has been that people pledge loyalty to a state, pay taxes in the form of currency or labor, and in exchange, receive protection. There have, of course, been many exceptions to this over history, but the trend generally remains intact. One of the biggest historical exceptions to that rule is within the Islamic world, where an institution of obligatory almsgiving called zakat has existed since the days of the Prophet Muhammad. In theory, each Muslim is obliged to give 2.5% of their personal wealth that exceeds a minimum amount of money. This money was collected and then redistributed to the poor, sick, stranded, or to people fighting to protect the faith through either violent or nonviolent means. Now, the actual success of zakat in establishing support for the poor is widely, widely debated among historians and religious scholars. But the general consensus seems to be that the practicality of zakat as an institution for social welfare varied a lot depending on time and place. Many historic Islamic states use zakat for its intended purpose, while others use that bit about funding those who protect the faith as a loophole to siphon zakat funds into the army. This had been the case in pre-revolutionary Qasr Hausa. The transfer of zakat to the military was so transparent that some of the more devoted Muslims in Qasr Hausa had actually started to evade official zakat payments, and instead opted for direct contribution to their local destitute peoples. After the overthrow of Yunfa, 
The Sheikhu immediately made clear that the reform of taxation and the implementation of policies to aid the poor were his top priorities. The administration of this task was handed over to Nana Asma's husband, named Gidado Dan Laima. Laima was appointed to the title of Muhtasib. His role was not only to oversee the collection of zakat and other taxes, but also to regulate the markets and distribution of land, making him basically the financial go-to guy in the Sokoto Khalifat. When it came to implementing the collection of zakat, a problem quickly arose involving the counting of wealth in the rural economy. Zakat typically took the form of taxes on wealth, measured in precious metals like gold and silver. For the rural economy of Qasr Hausa, that system didn't really work well. The rural economy didn't exactly operate on the paradigm of metal currencies. Typically, bartering was the preferred method for wealthy plantation owners and small landholding families alike. They would measure their wealth in grain stores, land, and slaves, rather than units of gold. Meanwhile, pastoralists typically measured their wealth in cattle, sheep, and other animals. So, traditional zakat, which kind of assumed the widespread use of currency, didn't really work here. Instead, Laima came up with a creative solution, a grain dole. In addition to more typical taxes, wealthy residents were required to either produce or purchase a quantity of grain or beef, which Laima's bureaucrats would then redistribute to the poor and destitute. This system dramatically streamlined tax collection in rural areas, and also ensured an annual stimulation of the economy by essentially forcing wealthy urbanites to make periodic purchases of grain or beef. It also aided in the pursuit of anti-corruption initiatives, as tax collectors had much less incentive to skim grain or beef supplies off the top of their collections compared to metal currency. It also made the Sokoto system somewhat unique among Islamic welfare states, as that ensured that very little zakat went towards funding the military compared to other Islamic societies at the time. The plan seems to have been a success, as visitors to northern Nigerian cities noted the inexplicable lack of beggars compared to cities in Europe and other parts of Africa. Due to the plan's success, historians of Sokoto like M.I. Mukhtar and Murray Last have claimed that the grain dole of Sokoto represented the first true welfare state of the modern era. Though it is worth noting that other respected historians, such as Holger Wies, have challenged this notion. While the driving force behind Fodio's support of the Sokoto welfare system was his religiously informed sympathy for the poor, the political benefits of such a system certainly didn't hurt. Uthman Fodio noted that spending resources on the maintenance of a welfare state was a more efficient means of government than the old system of maintaining large armies. In his view, it was cheaper to satisfy social resentment than to constantly fund an enormous army to crush it. As he wrote, A king gains victory over his enemies according to his justice over his subjects, and is defeated in wars according to his injustice. Seeing to the welfare of subjects is more effective than a large number of soldiers. It has been said that the crown of a king is his integrity, his stronghold is his impartiality, and his wealth is his subjects. There can be no triumph with transgression, no rule without learning of the law, and no rulership with vengeance. The Shehu continued to serve in his advisory position, providing insight and instruction to his brother and son, from the city of Safawa for seven years after the conquest of the House Estates. But even men with great ideas are subject to the same perpetual weakness of mortality. Shehu Fodio was certainly on the older side of things, 60 years of age, when he fell seriously ill in 1815. With his end clearly approaching, Fodio was forced to move to Sokoto and join his son, Vizier Mohamed Bello. 
even in a terminal state of sickness. The force of the Sheikhu's will kept him relevant. Serving as the capital of Bello's half of the Khalifat, Sokoto had already grown considerably as a city, and Fodio's move to Sokoto brought new fame to the expanding metropolis. Scholars from around and beyond the Khalifat moved in, seeking an audience of the famous wise men. He even helped his son arrange and design some new neighborhoods in 1816. But while he remained active, it was obvious that things couldn't return to normal. While the man had built a Khalifat, he spent his last years with the people who were truly closest to him, his family. By the end of his life, the prolific Fodio had sired 28 children, and it was in their company that the Sheikhu spent most of 1817. Unlike many great men on the verge of their demise, the Sheikhu had no delusions of miraculous recovery, no ego-driven denial of the sands of his life slipping away. He accepted his inevitable fate with admirable dignity. And as a consequence, he thought about the future. In order to avoid a succession crisis, the Sheikhu carefully arranged for all the power brokers in the Khalifat to place their support behind Muhammad Bello to succeed him as the next commander of the Believers. With his life's work secured in the hands of his most trusted son, Fodio passed away on the 20th of April, 1817. Few men in history can boast a legacy comparable to the commander of believers, the Mujadid, Imam Sheikh Uthman Dan Fodio. To quote the historian Ibrahim Suleiman, he fought falsehood and conquered it. He fought tyranny and conquered it. He fought ignorance and conquered it. But if you look at the figures of our past and expect to see infallibility, you are looking at the wrong species. Uthman Danfodio was not a messiah, he was not a supernatural being, and he never claimed to be. Rather, he was a human being, just like me or you. He was just a guy, living in his time and place, trying his best to adhere to a code of ethics that were a product of his upbringing and rationality. And, need I remind you, this is not a podcast about Uthman Danfodio. It is a podcast about the Sokoto Jihad. The Jihad was not carried out by Fodio alone. He did not write all the manuscripts, he did not carry all the spears, bows, arrows, and guns, he did not collect the taxes. No, the Jihad was a political and religious movement, a culmination of the efforts, circumstances, ideas, and passions of hundreds of thousands of equally fallible people. For this reason, revolutions rarely live up to the standards of their leaders, much less the standards of historical hindsight. By necessity, revolutions are messy. It is a time of great change, facilitated by great turmoil, and usually followed by a time of great suffering. The Sokoto Jihad was no different. And as students of history, we are forced to look back and question, was this all worth it? Besides the baggage of their own bloody beginnings, historical revolutions also carry the burdensome load of the events that follow. The Sokoto Jihad, fair or not, will be tainted not only by the events and trends that developed during the life of Fodio, but also by those that occurred after his death. And, like all great historical revolutions, the legacy of the Sokoto Jihad will be just as much, if not more, defined by the things that it didn't achieve. Scholars, both critical and supportive of the Sokoto Revolution, generally agree that the unraveling of the state's progressive and revolutionary sentiments began with the Sheikhu's last major decision, to support Muhammad Bello as his successor. This is not because Bello would be an incompetent or bad leader. No, he would actually prove quite capable at his job. Rather, the decision to pass power onto Muhammad Bello, his son, highlighted an uncomfortable truth about the Sokoto Khalifa. 
Remember, the entire hierarchy of accountability in the Khalifat's government was supposed to represent a circle. The people adhered to the rules of the emir because the emir listened to the vizier, who listened to the imam. And, in maybe the most crucial part of this civic relationship, the imam must be responsive to the people. This link between the imam and the people was the crux of the Khalifat's entire legitimacy. Without this link, the community is no longer an important part of a just system of government in which they possess real agency, but are simply a mob being ruled over by others. The decision to select his own son as his successor, though, served as a reminder of the sheer dominance that Fodio's family played in the state. The viziers of the East and West, one of whom was the imam, were his brother and son. Meanwhile, the control of finance was his son-in-law. Several emirs and qadis of important cities were also within the Fodio family. Abdullah, he tried to caution his brother against selecting Bello as his successor out of the fear that this would be the first step in the creation of a hereditary dynasty. If Uthman selected Bello, then that established a precedent, and Bello would select his son, who would then select his son, who would then select his son, breaking the link between the imam and the people. Uthman disagreed, and rationalized his decision with the logic that, just because he happens to be my son, doesn't mean there isn't consensus behind Bello's rule. Despite the Sheikh's rationalization, though, Abdullahi's words proved prophetic. The appointment of Bello was not a coincidental choice of the best candidate who just happened to be the Sheikh's son, even if that might have been how Uthman Danfodio intended it. Rather, it was the beginning of a tradition of hereditary rule that persisted throughout the entire history of the Khalifat. Every, yes, every single ruler of the Khalifat would end up being a direct descendant of Uthman Danfodio. This was not some circumstance where it just always so happened that the best and most beloved leader was a part of the Fodio family. This was a dynasty. The reign of Muhammad Bello also saw some movement away from the principles that his father had laid out. In order to consolidate his rule over the Khalifat and ward off any potential challengers, Bello's first major product was the initiation of a policy of dramatic military reform. The military of the Sheikhus Khalifat had, in practice, retained its character as a makeshift community of fighters, even after their military success. Fodio, remember, had actively avoided investing many resources into the army, and had instead placed the responsibility to raise and maintain garrisons at the hands of local emirs. Most of the conquests of the early Khalifat had not been a centralized military directive from Fodio himself but had rather been local emirs freebooting into enemy territories and conquering them. Bello, on the other hand, was very worried about the fact that all of the military power in his khalifat was concentrated into the hands of emirs who had not necessarily been consulted about his appointment, initiated a reform that consolidated the army into the hands of a few trusted emirs. It turned out that Bello was right, as the beginning of his rule was marked almost immediately with rebellions by numerous emirs. With the help of his allies and his newly consolidated army, Bello managed to put down these revolts. Bello's rule also saw the institution of a project of settlement centralization. He invested considerable state resources into the construction of urban settlements built around small fortifications called ribats. The ribats allowed for the stationing of garrisons and scholars in administered regions, allowing the armies of local emirs to more effectively police revolts. The Khalifat did go on to experience several more major revolts during Bello's rule, in which the Ribats would prove quite effective in containing them. 
However, I can't help but recall the idea laid out by Fodio that it is better to spend money in preventing revolts than to spend money on crushing them. It seemed like Bello disagreed, and had regressed to the old system in which the response to social unrest was never more social programs or education, but a bigger military to more effectively annihilate resistors. Bello's newly centralized military was put to use beyond crushing revolts. Throughout the 1820s, the Sokoto Khalifat waged several expansionist wars southwards, conquering territories from the nearby Yoruba kingdom of Oyo, as well as the Nupe and Shamba kingdoms. These southern conquests were undeniably different from the Khalifat's earlier military campaigns, both in their brutality and in their justification. Rather than justifying these campaigns through the language of Islam and unbelief, the rhetoric that Bello used to justify his conquests southwards relied on a rhetoric of mankind and animals, while the wartime rhetoric of Fodio depicted his enemies as civilized, ultimately good people trapped under the influence of ignorant and tyrannical kings. The rhetoric that Mohammed Bello used justifying his wars painted the lands of the south as untamed, uncivilized environments, closer to the realm of nature than the realm of mankind. From the viewpoint of Bello, the people of the south were practically animalistic themselves, in need of a civilizing force to guide them into the realm of man. This House of Fulbe's chauvinism would remain the primary rhetorical justification for future Sokoto wars in the south. Even compared to earlier conflicts, these wars were absolutely brutal, lasting for sometimes multiple decades of intermittent fighting. For the Khalifat, it was a costly success. The entire Nupe kingdom was integrated into the Khalifat's territories and placed under the rule of an emir, while the territory of Ibadan was seized from oil. For the Yoruba, Nupe, and Shamba, it was an apocalyptic disaster. There are no available figures for the number of people killed in the fighting, but there are reports of enormous depopulation, indicating that it was likely in the hundreds of thousands. Even among those who were spared from death, the fate they found awaiting them after their defeat was not much better. Which brings us to the institution which is by far the biggest stain on the Sokoto Revolution. Slavery, of course, is an institution as old as human civilization itself, and maybe even older. The notion that it was permissible and normal to force another human being to perform labor for you was, for thousands of years, an unquestioned paradigm of truth. Of course, slavery had been a major facet of life in northern Nigeria since long before the jihad. Remember, Kassar Hausa had been in a state of intense, regular intermittent warfare just before Fodio's revolution, and as a result, there was a constant source of POWs to use as enslaved labor. Remember, one of Fodio's main objections to the rulership of Kassar Hausa was their willingness to enslave fellow Muslims. Fodio's view on the matter of slavery was pretty standard among Islamic scholars of his time. To Fodio, slavery was like poverty, a bad thing that should be avoided when possible, but a tragic fact of life. Muslims should not take Muslims as slaves, nor should they act sadistically or unnecessarily cruel to slaves. But he never did develop this idea into a criticism of slavery more generally. When the Jama'a conquered the states of Qasar Hausa and their surroundings, non-Muslim enemies were often captured into slavery. Sokoto never participated in a major way in the transatlantic slave trade. After all, it was an inland state that rose in the period when this slave trade was undergoing rapid decline. So, the majority of enslaved captives remained in the Khalifat. The system of slave villages, in which entire enslaved communities labored and saw the profits of their work siphoned by overseers and owners, 
persisted and remained the dominant mode of agricultural production in the Sokoto Khalifat. The biggest change that took place is that, due to the seizure of lands from defeated enemies, these slave villages often grew into larger plantations. Combined with a recently enlarged labor force from the conquest of their enemies, the increased consolidation of plantations gave Hausa plantations a productive advantage in economy of scale. The new, politically centralized nature of Qasar Hausa further enriched plantation owners. In the past, it was not uncommon for slaves in Qasar Hausa to escape their bondage from the territory of one kingdom to another. Considering the sheer number of rivalries that often existed between Hausa kingdoms before the jihad, this meant that there was a likely chance that the king of the new city they were in wouldn't hand them back to their old master, even if their servile past was discovered. But now each Sokoto emir cooperated and aided each other when it came to recovering escaped slaves. The recently enlarged and consolidated militaries of Sokoto also often assisted in capturing escapees and putting down rebellions. Escaping the plantation in the Sokoto Khalifat was certainly a tall task. Now, slavery in Sokoto was in some ways different from the dominant conception of chattel slavery in the media, which primarily stems from the American South. Unlike slavery in America, slavery in the Sokoto Khalifat was justified primarily through the lens of religion, rather than a view of race. Race as we know it today, where humans are categorized and defined based on arbitrary classifications of skin tone, hair texture, and other physical features, didn't really exist in the Sokoto Khalifat. What did matter a lot was religion. The primary rhetoric used to justify slavery was that, by enslaving non-Muslims, they were more likely to convert to Islam. While someone who converted would not be freed, they did receive better opportunities in life regardless. For example, slaves who converted to Islam could become Mamluks, or military slaves. Mamluks served as soldiers and officers in the army of the emirs, and enjoyed a standard of living that even surpassed most free people in the Khalifat. Slavery was also not necessarily hereditary. If an enslaved worker converted to Islam, they would, in theory, guarantee a free future for their children. Slaves, theoretically of all religions, could also forego labor by the payment of murgu. Murgu was a kind of rent, except on your legal freedom instead of a house. An enslaved worker could bypass their labor obligations by paying their owner a certain amount of money. This is obviously still super exploitative, but it did mean that a rare subclass of enslaved people had a slim opportunity to potentially maybe earn enough money through working in the markets to earn their freedom and end the payments. Regardless, though, slavery in Sokoto was, well, slavery, and it was chattel slavery. It was forced exploitation that, at the end of the day, relied on violence and suffering. Unlike in many parts of West Africa, too, there was no appeal to familial integration in Sokoto. Slaves were property. They were written about and treated as such. It was a system of chattel slavery, and an enormous one. Estimates of the enslaved population of Sokoto vary dramatically, with the highest estimates reaching nearly 5 million by the turn of the century, but 2 million seems like a more likely estimate. This makes Sokoto the third largest slave state in modern history, with only the United States and Brazil at the peak of their enslaved population, exceeding it in terms of the number of unfree laborers. With estimates of the Khalifat's total population at the time hovering around 10 million, 
This means that likely around a fifth of the entire country's population was considered someone else's property. It's a tragic irony that Sokoto, a state that was so renowned for its intellectual tradition, and a state that seems almost ahead of its time in welfare economics and gender equality, also holds the title as being one of the biggest participants in one of humanity's most evil and brutish inventions. It is unfortunate when you think about how the state's legacy could have been much more impactful than it already is. The state could have served as a historical example of a democratic, constitutional welfare state in the interior of West Africa. It could have represented a shift in the paradigms of good government not only in Africa, but the world. But it didn't. Under Mohamed Bello and his successors, Sokoto increasingly drifted towards governing itself not as a caliphate, but as a standard hereditary empire. But I suppose that just like the revolutions of France, America, Russia, Haiti, Venezuela, Mexico, China, Cuba, Fanteman, England, Angola, and every other revolution in human history, the revolution of Uthman Danfodio's shortcomings are as numerous as its achievements. But just like all other revolutions, it would be foolish to judge Sokoto entirely by its failures. The revolution was a monumental event, not only in the history of West Africa or the Islamic world, but in the history of humanity. Before Fodio's revolution, the uncritically accepted paradigm in West Africa and much of the world was that government was not accountable to anyone. Not to the people, not to religious leaders, not to God himself. Sokoto changed this. The revolution represented a total paradigm shift. From now on, the relationship between the people and government was not meant to be so linear. The people owed loyalty to the state, but the state owed them well-being, education, and prosperity. I can't think of many legacies more radical and important than this one. We started this miniseries with a question. Was the movement of Uthman Danfodio and the Jama'a a revolution or a jihad? Well, throughout the program, I've used both terms somewhat interchangeably, and that was a conscious choice. The dichotomy between revolution and jihad is a false one. A jihad, that is a struggle, can be any number of things, including a world-altering revolution. While today the term jihad carries a connotation of reactionary politics in the Islamic world, while revolution carries the connotation of progressive politics in the West, these connotations should not necessarily inform how we label the Sokoto jihad. In my opinion, I think there has been a little bit of excessive overcorrection and scholarship on the Sokoto jihad. Seemingly, in an effort to undo the popular, orientalized conception of Uthman Danfodio as a fanatic, a mad mullah, scholarship in the West has kind of secularized Fodio. An increasing number of journal articles and books have actively tried to push back on labeling the Sokoto Jihad thusly, instead insisting on the term Sokoto Revolution. They have highlighted Fodio's ostensibly irreligious economic, social, and political positions while downplaying the fact that these positions were all informed by his Islamic faith. While it may make us, in our increasingly secular world, uncomfortable, Fodio was simply not a secular man. He was a Muslim, a devout, maybe even fanatical one. Every element of his life and beliefs was informed by his religious views. But, well, is religious fanaticism itself necessarily a bad thing? If a Christian priest believes that it is God-given mission to feed the homeless, is that not fanaticism? Or if a Muslim imam decides that it is his religious responsibility and lifelong mission to open an orphanage, what is not fanatical about that? If a Hindu believes his religion is calling him to open a school of the blind, is that not fanaticism? In this sense, Uthman Danfodio and his followers were 
certainly fanatics. Fodio is also a revolutionary, a slaver, a teacher, a great scholar, a warlord, a Puritan, an advocate for women's rights. He is all of those things. He's also a human being, like you or me. If 200 years from now, a future historian looked back on your life, what would they call you? What products do you think will make a historian sigh and call you a product of your time and place? What are some ideas that exist around us today that we accept without a second thought that will make future generations ashamed of us? And now that we've considered and speculated about these ideas, what are you going to do about it? Will you take the Sarki's bribe, or will you fight ignorance, tyranny, and falsehood and conquer them all? Oh boy, this was a crazy one. So, I think I've said this earlier, but this whole miniseries was originally envisioned as a single episode. Well, a little under four hours of content and 50 pages of script later, yeah, that didn't really work out. Making this miniseries was a total blast. It was so cool getting into the original works of Uthman Danfodio himself, as well as the more bog-standard secondary source readings that I did too. If you want to examine the sources for this miniseries, or just the show as a whole, any past or future seasons, that's all available under Seasons on the podcast blog. Each season has an associated bibliography all of its own, so yeah, if you want to get into the sources I use, or if you just want further reading, check those out. It's uh, Maybe I'm just a nerd, but I think that they're a lot of fun to read. I really sincerely hope that you all enjoyed listening to this series as much as I enjoyed creating it. This whole mini-series was actually done to celebrate back when we hit 100 patrons, and we're actually relatively close to hitting 200 soon, so maybe another one could be in store for at the end of our next season. Uh, if you want to join the existing patrons in supporting the show, which of course is tremendously appreciated, please do so by going to patreon.com slash historyofafrica. I've been undergoing yet another freaking huge shift in my life, career, and education recently, and I can't stress enough just how much the Patreon supporters have been such an immense help in making sure that I'm kept up with my normal life obligations while being able to take out the extra hours that I need to keep writing the show. It's been so, so helpful, and I am, and I am so, so thankful for those who support the show. Also, if you like the show, but you don't like the whole Patreon thing, you can support the show for free by dropping a review on iTunes, Spotify, or any other listening app, or just make a Facebook post, tweet, showing us to, uh, shouting us out to your friends. It really goes a long way. Anyways, this episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofag Bamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, BB Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sabalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Onwakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nobudike, Sheyuno Lorontimain, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, and Samuel Badu, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.